powered up. We have had to conform to a certain social game. And so we are in a constant state of competition. In terms of that competition, we can, of course, lose place. And in that sense, make mistakes. This is the secret. You can't make a mistake. Welcome, everybody, to Friends of Failure. I'm your host, Sam, and this is my co-host, Megan. Hey, yo. I am really excited to introduce you to this week's guest. Uh, this is Vic Ferrari. How you doing, man? Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Doing pretty good. It's a beautiful day, kind of chilly outside, but, like, I'll get over it, you know? <laughs> I feel like you know cold way better than we do. Yeah, growing up in New York City, there's no way around it for six months out of the year. <laughs> yeah, it's a little nippy out there, right? You know, I would love to start by you giving us just a little bit of uh, about yourself, right? So you, you grew up right in New York, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, my name is Vic Ferrari. Um, I grew up in the Bronx. I'm a Bronx kid. I always wanted to be an NYPD cop and a detective. By about the age of 10, my friends and I used to go to the local post office and steal the FBI wanted posters off the wall. And we'd start walking around the neighborhood conducting manhunts. Who we were going to grab and what we were going to do if we found someone, I don't know. I always wanted to be a police officer. My parents tried talking me into going to college and I would have none of it. By 21, I became a member of the New York City Police Department. I enjoyed a 20-year career. I was a detective for 10 of those years. I worked in a variety of different units. I worked in a DWI unit. I worked in an auto loss in a unit. I worked in narcotics where I purchased drugs for a short time. And my last 10 years was spent in the NYPD's auto crime division, which is organized crime. So if you could think of chop shops, stolen cars, exporting of stolen vehicles out of the country, uh, stealing vehicles to change their vehicle identification numbers, um, anything to do with cars and identity theft I did for, for my last 10 years. I retired after a wonderful 20-year career. I moved down to Florida. Um, I reinvented myself. I became a police officer again. I absolutely hated it. I went from being a police officer in the world's largest police department to Reno 911. I re-retired, uh, bored out of my mind. I decided to get into writing. And I had so many stories from my NYPD career. I was lucky enough to crank out four books, five books about the New York City Police Department. And, um, you know, people like you and podcasts and radio interviews have been nice enough to give me a platform. And I'm just a guy that had a police career and it got into writing. Uh, like, oops, I fell into writing these books. Uh, but that's that's a great way to, you know, if you're bored, write a book, right? Uh, I'm sure that's not an easy task right because uh, you never wrote a book beforehand right no and I had no formal training whatsoever I, I'm, I'm I'm more of a storyteller than than, than a, an accomplished author um, mm -hmm. my books are you can pick up my books and just thumb through it there's no beginning middle end they're just filled with short stories about the experiences the characters I worked with in the New York City Police Department uh, awesome. I love that. yeah yeah uh, and I'm sure you have plenty of stories to tell because 20 years, right? Uh, a lot goes on. Uh, I I mentioned this to you before, and and I would love to say it while we're, you know, here on the show. 
but just the titles of the books themselves was entertaining, right? <laughs> and and they kind of give you some insight of like, hey, like you're going to hear some wild stories. Do you have a favorite story to tell? And and I'm assuming if you do, it's probably in one of these books, right? You know, okay. So to, with the titles of the books, when you having a 20 year career with the NYPD is like having a front row seat at a circus. There's, I mean, you got the general public, right? That they're getting into interesting things. Then your coworkers are getting into interesting things. You've got the behind the scenes with the city that dictates policy, which is which is interesting and sometimes bizarre. So you just kind of sit back and take it and learn to roll with the punches. As far as favorite stories, and I'll give you a story because the name of your podcast is Friends of Failure, and I myself are no stranger to failure. So in my book, NYPD Law and Disorder, the opening chapter is called Embarrassing Moments. And most authors like to paint themselves as a hero in their books. They save the day in the nick of time. They have the witty comeback. They come out unscathed. Well, we don't, that's not true, obviously. We're all human. We all screw up. So there's a story in there. Early in my NYPD career, my partner and I are on patrol. I pull over this car, and in the back seat are three guys with four kilos of cocaine. So it's, it's a great arrest for a street cop, right? I'm relatively unknown in the NYPD. I'm walking around the precinct with these kilos parading around like I won the Stanley Cup, right? Everybody's taking pictures. How did you get this, right? I'm on top of the world. So the cocaine goes to the lab, the hombres go down to court. That night, I have to meet up with a district attorney to draw up the arrest, right? So across the street from the Bronx courthouse at the time was this newly built shopping mall, just built. So I said, you know what, I'm going to treat myself. They got a new food court in there. I mean, the food around that area is terrible. I'm going to go in there and try the food court, right? So there's an Asian woman serving bourbon chicken on sticks. I don't want that. I go to, I go to Sabaro's. And I order myself a veal palm and spaghetti. So I'm sitting there reflecting on my rest and I'm eating and I'm having a good time and just, you know, taking everything in. I'm proud of myself and my stomach starts to go. And I go, oh man, I got to go to the bathroom. Well, the bathroom across the street in the courthouse is a dump. The newly built shopping plaza is going to have a brand new clean bathroom. Perfect, right? I go into the I go into this bathroom. It's like a cathedral. It's clean. There's not a soul around, right? I'm in uniform, full uniform. I go into the stall. I take off my gun belt. I hang it on the hook on the back of the bathroom door. I drop my pants. I sit on the bowl and I'm getting ready for liftoff, right? While I'm sitting there ready to take a dump, I hear the bathroom door kick in of this bathroom. And I hear about five or six teenagers and they're screaming and yelling. They're hitting the hand dryers. They're turning on the water. They're fighting. I'm like, oh, shit. Now, yeah, I'm a cop, but I'm in uniform, but I'm kind of vulnerable with my pants down to the ground. And they don't know there's a cop in there, right? They're carrying on, right? And then it gets quiet. And I'm like, did they leave? Did they notice a pair of legs under the stall and decide to knock it off? So something tells me, you know what? I better get dressed and get the hell out of here, right? So I'm on the ball. Just before I go to pull up my pants, I look up and there's a kid in the next stall, he jumped on the toilet and he's hanging over my stall, looking at me on the bowl and he's reaching over to grab my gun belt. Now this is the Bronx. I jump up with my pants down. I jump up, right. With trying to pull my pants up with one hand, I grab the kid by the neck. And when I pull him, what do I do? I bring him closer to my gun belt. Now he's got his hands on my gun belt. 
I dropped my pants. So I got him now one hand and I'm hitting him. Let go of the gun belt. I'm just pummeling him, pummeling, pummeling. While I'm fighting him for my gun belt, his friends run into the next stall. They grab his legs. So now it's a battle of tug of war with my pants down to the ground over the, over the metal, that metal wall. He lets go of the gun belt. The wall buckles and he collapses into his friends into the next stall. They go running out. I pull up my pants. I get my gun belt on. I go running out into the food court. They're gone. They're gone. There's, a, there's, a, there's like a 300-pound porter with a buffing machine listening on a Sony Walkman. I go running up to him. I go, did you see a bunch of kids? He takes out, he takes the earphones off, looks up, burps, and tells me no. So what was I supposed to do at that point? Call the police? Can you imagine if a couple of Bronx cops showed up? Here I am a cop, and I'm going to tell them this story about me fighting for my life in a, in a toilet stall with my pants down to my knees? No, I didn't tell a soul until I decided to write this book. I sucked it up. Because, you know, I'd be the laughing stock of the Bronx if I went that route and called the police on myself that I was in a, a battle over my gun belt. So that, that chapter is called Embarrassing Moments. There's stories like that where things happened to me in my career and I chose to keep them to myself until I decided to write a book. It sounds I, like a sobering moment after a big it, victory. <laughs> it's You'll like, never go to a public restroom again with the same <laughs> confidence that no one's going to mess with you. Right. I, I feel also... Uh, I always like to use the phrase, uh, you know, oh, I was a slice of humble pie. And so like to go from this like huge, like arrest to, oh my gosh, I'm in the bathroom, like <laughs> fighting the with these kids. Right. Uh, all of a sudden you're like, okay, I guess I'm still like a, a normal man. I'm just a human being, you know? Right. Exactly. Uh, and I, and I think it's interesting to, to talk about and reflect on, how crazy of a contrast things can be in such a quick time. I mean, there's always that, man, I had this like streak, right. Where this and that, and everything was going perfect and you're on top of the world. And then there's that thing that kind of knocks you down a notch, but that was in what a 24 hour period. That was like in a four hour period or a three a four hour, hour period of like <laughs> yeah. on top of the world to like, by the way, don't forget in the shit house, literally. Right. <laughs> um, that had to be wild. Uh, and it was, <laughs> You know, knowing that you're okay, um, it makes it easier to enjoy the the comedic aspect. But in all reality, there had to be a part of that that was pretty terrifying too, right? I mean, people are trying to take your your weapon. Oh, yeah. Well, that's how. I mean, listen. I mean, in a twenty year career, and I got involved in a lot of arrests. There's been a couple of times where there's been a struggle for a bad guy's gun, another cop's gun, and I can tell you this. Um, and I don't know, you know, the average person has a traumatic incident a couple of times in their life. They almost get into a really bad car accident or something almost happens. When you're a cop and you're getting involved in things, those things tend to happen every now and then. It's more often than the average person. And there's a mindset. They call it fight or flight. And sometimes flight isn't an option. It's you get it in your head when you're in the fight with somebody over a weapon. Like I can't lose because mm -hmm. if I, because if I lose, I'm dead or I could get yeah. someone killed. So it's like that, that's how guys get hurt because you're putting everything into it. You, you don't care about injuring yourself at that point. It's it's, you could lose your life that easy. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's no denying that. Right. Um, you know, it's kind of a weird question, but whenever you enter certain professions, it changes the way you see 
certain TV shows and movies, right? So, of course, the question would be, do you think there's any accuracy in movies um, in terms of how they portray, you know, police officers, right? And some of those situations that they get in, because, you know, there's the whole aspect of like, there is like the TV show Reno 911. And it's just, it's meant to be a comedy. They get in these really goofy situations that in a non It might be kind of real. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, the writers of Reno 911 are, are very skilled writers. And obviously that takes things to a totally yeah. different, like, like Reno 911 is like the polar opposite of like blue bloods. Right. Right. But what Reno 911 gets right is what a lot of cops think or might not say there, there, there is always in every police station, a couple of village idiots that will get <laughs> themselves in trouble or will think something that have to be snapped into reality. Like, what, what were you even thinking to get yourself involved in something like that? That's like, you know, if there was a whole police station like that, you know, the world would end. Whereas Blue Bloods, you know, I, I mean, I've only watched a couple episodes. It's, it's totally fictional. War and Order in the old days used to get it right as far as an investigation goes with the DA and the cops working with the prosecutors and the witnesses and how to get things ready for trial and, and, and witnesses that want to back out at the last second. Lauren Order gets that right. I mean, they did. I haven't watched the show in years. Um, yeah. Law enforcement work is more interesting. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. Like, you know, with a television show or a movie, they only have so much time to make something interesting. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas in law enforcement, you can go days or weeks without something really interesting. And then all of a sudden something can turn into dime and you're going balls to the wall with something with an investigation or trying to solve something, or you come up with this massive arrest or search warrant. that's going to take days to comb through all this mountain of evidence, you know, and where you're just, you're not going home. I mean, you're sleeping in the office for a couple of hours and going right back to it. Mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I, I don't think people ever think about that part of it. Right. Because from my end, um, you know, I'll watch say like a movie or a TV show. And especially if it's a, more of the serious side of things, right. The part where they're combing through evidence is usually like a quick little montage or a blip, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. I don't have to see the scene where the, the people have to sleep in the office. I just get straight to the results, you know um, you know, part of me asking that question is um, I, so I did military for four years. I didn't do like a 20 year thing. Um, and it was a good ride. I, I enjoyed it. But I do remember, you know, even when I was in, I felt differently about military movies. And then, you know, I've been out for so long that even now I look at my experience differently and I look at, at military movies differently. Right. It doesn't really um, interest you. It's just different. Right. Uh, it every once in a while, they'll get me right. And I'm like, hey, this isn't so bad. And so that was going to be my question is, do you do you even entertain the idea of watching, you know, these movies and TV shows that are cop related or you're like, Hey, I lived it. Like, I don't really need to sit down. And not really. I mean, I, I, I watch a lot of, I, I watch a lot of crime documentaries. I watch a lot of mob movies. I mean, growing up in New York city in the seventies, eighties, nineties, I mean, you know, I'm a huge fan of Martin Scorsese and Goodfellas mm -hmm. and casino and anything to do with organized crime and the mob, because I, I worked a lot of mafia cases Mm -hmm. So I find it interesting how they portray the people that we had cases with, you know, so I, I find that interesting. 
but just to put on like Blue Bloods or Chicago PD or, you know, whatever they have on now, it just doesn't, it, it, the actors speaking the lingo doesn't sound right. It's just, it, it's like a, it's like a knockoff thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, yeah. Once you see uh, the real it, thing, it's not quite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're just so, watching yeah, You got some rate. guy from Vancouver trying to put on a Brooklyn accent. It, just, <laughs> it doesn't work. I can hear it. You, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, you can tell phony, right? I see it. Um, yeah, I I always find it interesting, you know, especially when you get to the point where, like in your case, you you start writing these books and start sharing experiences. Um, you initially retired how many years ago? Well, I did a twenty year career. I'm out. It's going to be fifteen years. Yeah. So, like you said, you you got to a point even with the embarrassing stuff. You're like, eh, like why not, right? <laughs> Um, but in some of these, in some of these books, uh, I imagine that you also tell a couple of stories that are a little bit more intense. Oh, definitely. When, when I, when I set out to write these books, the two things I said to myself was, I don't want to embarrass any of my friends and I don't want to get someone in trouble or divorced. (laughs) So what I do is, and there's a lot of them. So what I do is with my books, I change the locations, the dates, the ranks, the time periods, who I was working with. But I mean, I get calls all the time from my friends. I'll put out a book and they're like, I know who you're talking about. I'm like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, if you did a 20 year career with the NYPD, some of these stories are famous within the NYPD. Yeah. But to the average person would know what you're talking about. But I don't, you know, this happened in the Bronx in 1994 at this precinct. I move things around. Yeah, mm-hmm. you keep it anonymous, but you're at least being vulnerable about it and t- talking about yeah, it's a, it. Yeah. Right, think of it as a novel written by an insider. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's um, There's stories about, the, there's a chapter in uh, NYPD through the looking glass of practical jokes and just the stuff that went on with the practical jokes inside the police station. And like anybody that picks up that book that was in that precinct in that time period knows damn well what I'm talking about so uh you have our interest I, we're gonna have to hear some practical jokes it makes me think of um Brooklyn Nine-Nine I don't know if you've seen mm. that but I know what it is I've never watched see <laughs> it's, but it's they're very big on inner precinct like jokes and competitions and all right so when I, when I was a detective um one time it was getting later in my shift and uh I had a date so I had changed my pants I put on a pair of slacks. I went up to my lock. I put on a pair of slacks. When you work in a detective office, think of it this way. Everybody's a trained observer. They're watching your every move. I mean, guys can pick up immediately. You know, it's like a cockroach when you put the light on. It's like they notice everything. So one of these smart asses figured out, look, look at him. Ferrari's got a date. So what he did was when I went up to get a cup of coffee, he took a, a water and soaked my chair. So when I sat down, I got a wet ass and everybody in the office is laughing. And I was like, ah, you got me. You got me. And I went upstairs. I changed my pants. I went back downstairs and around the corner from our office was a pet store. So I bought a bag of crickets. You've got a hundred crickets that, that I guess you feed snakes or whatever. I don't know why they would have crickets, but they ha- I was going to buy a snake, but I didn't want to kill this guy. So I bought a bag. I bought a bag of crickets. I got a Slim Jim, which is a, car, a tool used to break into cars. I went into the parking lot. I found his personal vehicle. I slim jim the door. I opened up the back seat. I cut the bag open and I dumped the crickets in the back seat of his car and I slammed the door. So I go back up to the office and say, hey, Ferrari, no hard feelings. I go, no, don't, 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 don't worry about that shit. 
So what I did was I kind of got the guys in the office. I go, don't, don't leave at six. So he walks out and they're like, what's up? And I go, just watch. And we threw open the window because he had to go around the block with his car. He slams on the brake. He jumps out of the car and he's looking at it. And you see him trying to get them out. What well, was an older car? It was like a 1990 Cutlass Supreme or whatever the hell it was. He, he wound up having to sell the damn thing because he would like throw roach bombs and stuff in there and leave the windows open. But you just can't get them out. They kept breeding in there. So he wound up selling the fucking car. Oh so, I mean, gosh. yeah, we. That's we, glorious. <laughs> there were a lot of practical jokes in a precinct or a detective office. That, uh, well, and that, like, that's effective. Um, it escalated that, naturally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you I never fuck with me again after that, if that's what you're thinking. Yeah. That, that kind of put an end to that. Well, I mean, right. And nobody got hurt, right? No. Like, it's a, no. it's a, crickets aren't going to. The crickets got a home. So, if anything, like. I thought about a black god snake, but then I thought if this guy is driving and feels something by his feet and he looks down, he might drive against traffic. I, I, you know what I mean? I don't want to mm-hmm. kill the guy. I just want to scare the shit out of him. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to actually jot that down just for a future. Uh, <laughs> you know. Someone's going to roll up on me trying to open a, someone's car to pour crickets in there. Um, so uh, is that, would you say, uh, let's say 10 being the craziest thing, where on the scale would that be? Is that lower end kind of prank stuff with, what, the with your coworkers? Oh, God. I mean, now in, in precincts, so there's, there's a chapter in NYPD through the looking glass. And then you had the other side of the coin, like vicious stuff. So what happens in the NYPD, think of it this way. Think of a, a police station. The average NYPD precinct has anywhere between 100 to 300 cops per police station, okay? So you're managing a ton of personalities. And usually running an NYPD precinct, it used to be a captain. Now it's either a deputy inspector or an inspector. And they're there for a short time. They're looking to move up in rank, but they run policy. So some of these commanders will come into a precinct and they'll just, they'll come in. They're, they're not going to change anything right away. They're going to look around. They're going to see if they can find some trusted allies. And they're going to dictate policy, what goes in the precinct, what doesn't. Other times you get guys that come in there with two feet, they bring an army of their own people in and they're dictators. They're immediately, no, no one, no one can get time off and they piss off the staff. Now in the nineties and eighties in the South Bronx, you were, you were lucky if the cop, you should be happy if the cops even came into work every day. And some of these commanders would come in heavy handed. And some of the, I wouldn't call it practical jokes. I would call it pushback was severe. So to give you an example, um, one guy, one commanding officer, and this is before direct deposit, the cops in the precinct stole his check and they cashed it at a local um, liquor store. So internal affairs, and of course, obviously the liquor store owner had to have been in on it. So when internal affairs brings in this guy and he says, you know, who, who gave you this check to cash? He goes, I don't know. Cops come in here all the time to cash a check. So they go, you're telling me you don't know who it is? He goes, is it a crime to be a moron? Which basically ended the investigation. Another time, guys uh, had, a, had a, a dump truck from a, a landscaping company dump a couple of yards of fertilizer in, in, in a captain's front yard. You know what I mean? Another time they went into the computer and put an active alarm. They made his car stolen. So basically someone ran his plate in another borough. He got dragged out of the car like he was a bad guy. You know, Uh, another time uh, guys put marijuana in a guy's pipe. 
You, you know what I mean? So th there would be pushback sometimes. And I don't advocate that. I think it's wrong. I think things can be settled with words. But in, in the old days with some of these guys, the pushback would be severe. There's a different level. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They used to take that shit definitely too, too far. I think part of what makes some of this so entertaining is that, I mean, even say that's putting crickets in someone's car. I mean, you could get terminated for that now. Right. Like it would be oh like, hey, my you're not God. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's funny you should say that because when I worked for the small police department down in Florida, they, they, they were, I, you know, you go through all this training and they're like, if you have any problems, you can go through human resources. I go, what the fuck is human resources? Like, you know, civil service in New York, we didn't have you. I didn't even know what it was. And then I'm like, why would we, what, you know, I mean, like in the NYPD, if you had a problem with somebody, it got settled in the locker room or in the parking lot. You didn't go right. crying to your sergeant. You didn't go crying to the commanding officer. I mean, it would have to be really, really bad. Guys handle things. Or your union delegate would say, hey, listen, you're breaking this guy's balls too much. Enough. Take your foot off the gas. That's it. Okay. You, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. There was no running around and tattletailing on each other or this one was mean to me or this one's dropping parking tickets in my sector it was a different world yeah no but right. the shit that used to go on i i can't even fathom that going on now even in new york i, I don't think that not that easily fun. yeah <laughs> so i imagine with some of the the crazier stuff the more serious type situations what i'm trying to segue into is you know times do change right every decade things sure. are going to kind of morph into whatever they're going to morph into. And so, you know, with some of the crazier situations that were probably a lot more sticky than, you know, you being in a restroom and kids trying to jack your, your gun. One, do you have any stories where it was like a close call for you? And you were like, Holy, Holy crap. That was like a moment where they, I, you were like grateful at the end of the day to maybe be alive or whatever. But then two, do you think it's way more dangerous now? Like in New York being a part of the NYPD? Uh, yes. And uh, well, to your first part of your question is, yeah, I've had a couple of close calls that I shouldn't be around. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, on 9-11, um, I was supposed to, I, my office is up in the Bronx. I had court that day in lower Manhattan. My sergeant and I were supposed to go down to the courthouse and I had arrested this guy for a couple of stolen cars and he was going to be a confidential informant. He had a source that was working in the department of motor vehicles that was pumping out fake driver's licenses. Well, good driver's licenses under bogus name. So he, we were going to sign him up as a confidential informant. So there was a meeting at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office with him, his attorney, and the DA to work out an agreement. The meeting was supposed to be at 9 a.m. And I got to the Bronx office at nine and my, uh, at 7, and my sergeant was supposed to be there at 7. And it's 8 o'clock. He's not there. My sergeant comes walking into the office at like 8.15. And I said, hey, you know, we're going to be late. We got to make it, you know, to drive down to Manhattan and find parking is going to take an hour. We're going to be late. He goes, all right, all right, just give me a second. And uh, downstairs, one of, the, one of the cops from downstairs runs up to our office. He goes, put on CNN. He goes, um, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. So we put on the television and, you know, we don't see the actual impact, but we see, you know, smoke and flames coming out, out of one of the towers. And like, we didn't know what happened. We thought maybe, you know, a Cessna, you know, like maybe a pilot with a small plane had a heart attack and crashed into the World Trade Center. And while we're watching it unfold, the second plane hits. So obviously now we know it's terrorism. The call comes from police plaza. Everybody get into uniform and get ready. 
So by one o'clock, one thirty, I was down at ground zero walking around. But what saved my life was my sergeant being late because I would have been down there. And obviously I would have responded to the, you know, we all would have run there trying to get people out of there. And I, you know, I don't know what my role would have been. I don't know if I would have been outside. I don't know if I would have gotten sucked into the building. You know what I mean? But it was by the grace of God that my sergeant was late and basically saved our lives. That's a life lesson. That's super scary of the, literally even if it was just by a few minutes it changed the whole course of your day right yeah and and you know that's that's an intense one I didn't even think about 9-11 and like where your career was at you know I was in eighth grade when that happened I I was in second (laughs) yeah uh, but I do I do remember watching the news like that is one of my earliest memories is they put on the news because they didn't know what was happening and we saw it in our second grade classroom and the panic of that day. And it's insane to think of even being in the same city because we were all the way over here in Texas and it was terrifying. Like, Mm. so it's one of those, I guess it's weird because it's a national moment where it feels like it's close to death, but then you also had that personal level as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was down there walking around, um, we were there from 1.30 in the afternoon. I didn't leave there till 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And they told us, when you go home, immediately take a shower, throw this, because you had all that crap all over us. This stuff is toxic. Throw that in the washing machine or burn it or do whatever you got to do with it. And I'll be back by 5.30. So I was back there by 5.30 the next night. And uh, I mean, this is 20 years ago. The first couple of days, I was down there at night um for the first couple of nights and by then they had started bringing in heavy equipment to move things around they had construction workers and the iron workers down there who don't get any credit just like to take you know i know cops and firemen were down there and we did our part but god bless bless those construction workers and those iron workers and heavy equipment operators because the reality is they never get credit but i mean it's that stuff would still be down there if it wasn't for those guys like pulling beams and moving shit and you know, uh, using heavy equipment to move things around. I mean, those guys really pitched in and, and, and saved the day. It's an insane situation to try to wrap your head around. I mean, even being involved, um, even being involved in it, looking back at it, there's got to be times where you're just kind of like, wow, it's still surreal. Uh, I think it's it's weird for me because, I, like I said, I was in eighth grade and then, you know, it's gotten to a point now I'm, I'm in my early thirties and I have talked to people that are like, yeah, I don't really have any recollection. Like I know it happened, but I don't have any memories of that day. Um, which is totally fine. I mean, when you're born the same year as nine 11, you're not going to remember that no. day. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but it, but it's wild. Right. And you know, uh, one thing I also wanted to say is I'll never forget a few years back in a few years, I think is actually like six years ago, I had talked to a guy that uh, he, he had been an electrician for a really long time. And when Katrina happened, that that hurricane and all the craziness oh, yeah. happened, Terrible. he was like, he was like, yeah, we we had to go out there and we had to we had to do work. And he explained the situation out there. And I'm not going to go into details, but it basically sounded like a war zone. I mean, oh, there was a lot was of bad looters and people shooting at each other and wild dogs running around, you know. It was just crazy. Oh yeah, it was crazy. And he tells me this, and he was like, "Yeah." He's like, "One, he's like, I'm not telling you this because I want you to be like, oh, you know, 
thank you for being an electrician. But he was like, no one covered that on the news of, hey, maybe we should also thank these guys because, you know, the, the news is an interesting, you know. Well, they're on to the next thing. You know what I mean? They want to grab your attention with something good, bad or indifferent. Then they're on to the next thing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That the, you know, the um, the filling kind of just gets in the way of their narrative. But yeah, I, I yeah, I can only imagine what that guy saw. And he had no protection. You know what I mean? I mean, he's on a, yeah. a power line and this guy's, you know, warring factions fighting over turf. And this guy just wants to put the lights on for people or, you know, right. move a tree or a telephone yeah. pole. This poor son of a bitch. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a it's a pretty crazy world, right? Um, and I and I'm grateful that it's not always doom and gloom. Like I, I'm grateful, even if we have to see it in hindsight, that there's kind of a comedy to it sometimes, right? Um, yeah, you, you have to laugh. Or you, you listen. People ask me that, like, you know, how does it affect you? And I'm like, you know, by the time 9/11 happened, I had like 13 or 14 years in with the police department, so I had seen a lot. I had seen DOAs. I had seen people decapitate. I've seen a lot of bad things. And you learn to compartmentalize things. You know, you, you can't take this stuff home with you. You can't dread on it. And, I, I, you know, maybe that says that I'm not normal, but I've never had a nightmare about the things that I saw in my police career, nor do I dwell on them. They're there. I can remember them. It's not like I choose to block them out. It's something that happened. It's unfortunate. But if I, if I think if I tend to dwell on it and think too much of it, you become a basket case. You've got to move on. And like you said, you can't you, that can't be your mantra mm-hmm. if you do you're going to be a miserable person i remember things but you know i choose not to make it who i am yeah yeah, yeah. your trauma doesn't define you yeah yeah you know that's part of i i think where megan and i started this i mean it's really your idea and then we ran with it right uh i just get to be a part of it i'm grateful for that give yourself some credit Uh, but you know it was that whole thing of being afraid of failure will hold you back right it's like tying an anchor to your ankle and throwing yourself in the ocean and and you're just refusing to allow yourself to move because you don't want to fail but you know failure isn't also just doom and gloom right there are times i'm sure you failed i know for sure i've had some failures in my life where you know i went after it and i just didn't quite hit the mark but it was funny like i was i allowed myself now to you laugh look back and you go oh that was shitty but it's kind of funny yeah. now. <laughs> like maybe i should it. write a book right yeah. right yeah, that's true you learn from it you know and you learn to move on if you fail at something and then you then you say to yourself was it worth it if it's worth it, you go back and try it again. And if you really want to do it, you keep doing it until you're able to pull it off. If you try something and you're not successful and you say, it's not, that's not really worth it for me. Or you know what, even if I did pull it off, that's not really, I I don't think I would enjoy it. So I always wanted to play the guitar. And as a child, my parents rented me a guitar. I was taking music lessons and I was terrible. And I wasn't, and I wasn't practicing. I would go in my room and strum to keep my mother thinking that I was doing the note <laughs> the homework. And then I would go back and the guy would, the, the, the music teacher knew I didn't, I wasn't practicing. So they took the guitar away from me. So four years ago, there's a music place by me. And I said, you know what? I got the time. I'm retired. I'm going to learn to play the guitar. I go into this place. He's an older gentleman. He loved me. He wants to hear cop stories. So my my one hour lessons were turning into three hour lessons. Like this guy was so nice. He was like going over A, E, B or whatever it is. And I'm trying, trying, trying. I go home. He gives me the guitar to take home. 
same shit. I'm not practicing. I don't have time. And then I would go to him and he would go, he'd listen to me for a couple of seconds. He'd go, Vic, are you not picking this up? And it's like, I had to break up with him. I go, you know, I says, I feel so bad. I says, I feel like such a douchebag. I go, you know, I says, you're so nice. You spend all this time with me. I go, and I'm not doing the work. I says, it's, it's not something, it, it sounds like a good idea to me to learn how to play the guitar, but it's not in me to learn how to play the guitar. But that's just not how I'm wired. It, it's not meant to be. And he felt bad. He goes, well, could you come back and tell these stories? I go, yeah, and I do. I stop by every now and then and I shoot the shit with the guy. There you the go. The funny thing is I wanted to play the banjo when he goes, no. He goes, you know how much <laughs> more difficult that is? I says, all right. And that was it. I, I think it's poetic though, because you had your original want to do it and you go back and you're like, now I have time. Now I can really focus. And it's the same lesson being taught to you. And oh, it's- I fucking fail miserably. <laughs> And it's okay because you realize I'm just not meant to play the guitar. And I ironically, yeah, I ironically, I wanted to play a guitar because I knew a guy who had a guitar. I got one for Christmas and then I never fucking touched it. There you go. (laughs) Just not musically inclined. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a great point of something I've really focused on in the last few years of there have been failures in my life that when I looked at it from a different lens of, well, how bad did you really want to do that? And then after thinking about it long enough, I was like, I guess I like the idea of it, but I really didn't want it enough that I wanted to do the work. Right. And I laugh in my head when you were like, yeah, I had to break up with them because as a, (laughs) as a personal trainer, I mean, people would literally be like, Hey man, it's, it's not you. It's, it's me, right? Like I, I don't want to go home and do crunches. I I don't want to learn how to do pull-ups. And I'm like, you don't have to. And they're like, I just feel like I'm disappointing you and me. And I'm like, no, but wait, don't go. Right. Um, Yeah, that's right. Make sure you uh, make sure you get your vegetables, please. Yeah. Drink your water. Um, Do you, do you have any stories um, that it, it, you know, aligns with the idea of going through failure. And and one thing I want to ask you about is, I mean, you decide to be a an officer, right? And you have to go through school, right? Like you have to go through like a training. Yeah, police and academy, a, yeah, a six month police, police academy. academy. Um, and I assume it's nothing like the movies, um, <sighs> right? So were there were there things when you when you obviously you knew you wanted to be a police officer pretty early on, right? When you got to it, were there things that you had to kind of work through and grow in order to accomplish it or? Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I was lucky enough. I had a friend of mine, very good friend of mine who I'm friends with to this day. He was a little older than me. He got hired a year before me, which that was tremendous for me because I got to watch him go through it and pick his brain about everything, what Mm -hmm. to expect, how to prepare myself, keep your mouth shut, just go along what they tell you. I mean, he was like, you know, it was like having the cliff notes to go through the police academy. You know what I mean? It, it was only, it wasn't like he was in there. You know, I had people that I knew that were cops that were through there four or five years ago. It was like stale information. He was tremendous as far as getting me ready for the academy and just telling me, listen, they're going to, you're going to eat a lot of shit. He goes, you just have to do it. He goes, what? And he goes, all they're going to tell you is, don't believe what they tell you in the street. He goes, well, it's going to be the opposite. When you get out of the police academy, they can tell you don't believe what you heard in the police academy, which mm-hmm. is true. So that was tremendous for me. But as far as getting knocked on my ass, so I was always a car guy. I grew up in a neighborhood where 
stealing cars was a rite of passage. I worked in a gas station and guys would come in with stolen cars all the time. So I knew everything about stolen cars, what to look for, broken ignitions, broken locks, tons of things. I had an education in stolen vehicles before I was a cop. And early on in my NYPD career, even as a rookie, I would stop stolen cars all the time. I was always known for getting into car chases and and I wanted to go to the NYPD's auto crime division early on in my career. And specialized units in the NYPD, and it's sad to say, is, is there talent in there? Yes. But there's also a lot of phone calls that go in there. We call it a hook, a hook mm-hmm. to get into a place. You'd know that in the military. So to get into a coveted spot, you got to know somebody. Someone's got to make a phone call for you. And a really coveted spot, we don't call it a hook, we call it a crane. You got to know somebody above the rank of captain or inspector to pick you up and get you in that unit. So I went to the auto crime school. They were offering a course. So I jumped at it. And I, I had three years on the job. I'm sitting in this room in the auto crime division, and there's a couple of instructors, you know, teaching about auto theft. And I'm just sucking it in like a sponge. And I'll never forget, he says, who here wants to work here? I only got two, three years in. And like, you know, you never raised a year in the military. You never volunteer for anything. I throw my hand up and he goes, oh, stand up. He goes, "Um, your father a captain or inspector? I said, no. He goes, sit down. You're never going to work here. And I said, that fat son of a bit. And I, I made it my life's mission. I was working in the auto crime division like six years later because I wouldn't take no for an answer. You know, everybody can, oh, you'll never get in there. And that's the thing about cops. I know it's the NYPD, but I saw it in the small police department. Cops tend to get bitter. I'm never going to get this. They're never going to, I'm never going to get canine. I'm never going to get this. We'll do something about it. Work your ass off. Don't take no for an answer. Just, just keep plugging away. Do your job. Get good evaluations. You know what I mean? I was never an ass kisser, which is probably why I never got promoted, but I got into, I got close a couple of times. You know what I mean? It's like, never take no for an answer. Just keep pushing away and let your work speak for yourself. You know, don't be that bitter guy in the locker room that, you know, oh, why should I put in for that? I'm not going to get it. Well, you, you'll never get it because you never tried. Yeah. Yeah. Attitude. And my, my thing is like, if you stop and there's no motion, you just have to do something like, just do anything, keep doing your job. If that's the thing, something, because when you have that attitude, we've all had a coworker that's like that, where they're bitter and done with the world and right. it doesn't help you or them or anyone. <laughs> it's just a stick in the fucking mud. So yeah, and I you can only yeah. listen to someone vent for so long. Cause and then, then you, after a you while, like, you blow yeah. a fuse, you're like, yeah. all right, like you cross the street to get away from this fucking guy because it's like, Oh, here we go again. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, Saw it all the time. I like the, uh, I, I, I've done it a couple of times where, oh man, I'm never going to X, Y, Z. And it's like, yeah, not with that attitude. And they're like, no, screw you, man. And it's like, but no, for real, right? <laughs> the, the There has to be at least some form or a piece of the mentality that goes, I mean, you could technically do it, right? Like maybe you don't have the answer of how you're going to do it. I do have to ask, did you ever find the crane that picked you up and like put you in there or you just literally no i'll tell you you what happened i I mean i had the resume i had the resume to get in there and what wound up happening for me is it wasn't a crane it was kind of like a lateral move i was in narcotics earlier and my sergeant liked he took a liking to me but i didn't like narcotics i was in narcotics for about a year and a half and i just 
Working in narcotics in the NYPD, you're doing buy and bust operations every day. So every day you go out with a field team of six to eight guys and a sergeant with a couple undercovers. You get a attack plan. You go location to location. Your undercover gets out. He makes a buy. You move in. You scoop the bad guys up. You throw them in a van. You go to the next location. You, you fill up that van with eight, 10, 12, 15 perps. You bring them into a precinct and then it's like McDonald's. Then you strip searching them. You're processing them. And this goes on and on and on. So when you're not doing buy and bust, you're in court testifying. When you're not caught testifying or doing buy and bust, you're working on getting a search warrant from these guys that provide the information. And there's no, it's like McDonald's. It just, it's, it's the same thing over and over again. Also working in narcotics in New York, you're with the dregs of society. I always had a cult. You always, because you're arresting street people, you're arresting the homeless. So you're always, you're always got a cold. You're always got a sore throat. You're always afraid of getting stuck with a needle. You're always afraid of getting hepatitis C. You're always afraid of getting HIV because a lot of these people are very sick and they have needles or open wounds. They fight with you. I wanted out. A year and a half, I knew, I knew enough that I didn't like it. So I went to my sergeant and I said, listen, I, I want out. And he goes, oh, are you sure? You're going to blow your chances of becoming a detective? I said, no, I've seen enough. I, I want to go back to patrol. And he liked me. And he had come from auto crime as a cop and he liked me. So he liked the way I went about it to get out. I, I, I went through proper channels. I went through the chain of command and I got my wish. I went back to patrol. A couple of years later, he's a sergeant in the auto crime division. And he sees me and he says, what are you doing now? I said, oh, I'm working at a precinct. I'm still making my car rusty. He goes, you should put in for the auto crime division. I go, you think? And he goes, yeah. He goes, just, uh, he goes, you know what? He goes, fill out your application and drop it off with me. I went for my interview and he wasn't even on the interview board, but he put in a good word for me and I got it. You know nice. what I mean? So it was, listen, if it wasn't for him, probably not. I wouldn't have gotten in there, but it was, he liked me from narcotics and I was a stand-up guy. And when I wanted to leave, I didn't trash the place on an exit interview or anything. I just, I said, just, it's not, it's not, it's not you, it's me. And I left, you know, and I, I lucked out. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate also kind of what you were saying, right? You you were just like, hey, man, I don't want to do narcotics. And it wasn't, hey, I got to figure out how to straight get to, you know, the the auto crime, right? You're like, hey, I'm just going to go back to patrolling and I'm going to just do my time. There is something to be respected about that. I mean, especially then, but I would even argue now. Um, oh, they thought I was crazy. Really? Oh, They're like, why would you go? Is like that the mafia. Well, the NYPD in a lot of ways is like the mafia. You, your reputation means everything. You, it does. Your reputation in the NYPD means everything. Now, I was a stand-up guy, but everybody looked at me because the first thing everybody asks, you go back to a precinct and you're in uniform. They go, what the fuck happened? Would you get thrown out? No, I left. Come on. You know, and, and to become a detective or it was at one time was a highly coveted thing. For me to take a step backwards to go forwards was unheard of. And, you know, guys look into it, you know, they start making phone calls. Like, what happened with him? Did something happen? Did, you know, did he go bad? You know, what happened? And they're like, no, he, he wanted out. And like, nobody could wrap their head around it. And I remember a couple of times, like, explaining to guys, I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm not doing this for you. I did it for me. I go, I was fucking miserable. And I just, I didn't see the point of sitting in a pool with piss. Shame on me for doing that. I got out of the pool and went somewhere else. You know what I mean? It's like, I was miserable. I wanted out. But and you didn't yeah, throw like a Snickers bar in there. People wrap their heads around it. I'm going to start using that analogy. I like the, the piss pool. <laughs> <laughs> 
I got out, man. I just, I can't sit in it anymore. It was too warm. It was not about it. <laughs> it was too warm. It smelled. <laughs> um, I, I, I think it's interesting too, because as you're talking, you know, I've kind of left, I've left the mentality that I'm going to find something where I'm going to have a career, like a, like a traditional career. Um, and I'm okay with that. Uh, I don't know what that means as I move forward, but I do know that part of it is I do agree with, I need to do what's best for me. And then I need to do, um, you know, like, let's say I ended up in my narcotics unit and I'm like, Hey, this is not going to work for me. Even if I tried to tough it out and make that happen as long as I could, at some point you're going to get burned out of like, this is not for me. Right. Well, it's going to affect, it's going to affect your personal life. So mm-hmm. if you've got to go to work every day and you absolutely loathe what you're doing and you have options, you, you can go somewhere else. I mean, shame on you for staying there. You know, it's not like you're quitting your job. It's I, I had options. I could go back to a precinct. So I, you know, people tend to put restrictions on themselves where they live their life by expectations. Mm. You know, it's like if, if I went by my friend's mentality, I would, I would have stayed in narcotics for probably another four or five years. And then after that, I probably would have, you know, they, they, they turn, they have a turnover and I would have gotten dumped in a detective bureau somewhere, you know, or I'd be eating Chinese food six nights a week. And, you know, probably it, it would have been a bad look for me. I, you know, I, I enjoyed organized crime. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to cars. So, you know, I took a step backwards, but you shouldn't be governed by other people's expectations because then you're not living your life. You're living in how someone thinks you should live it. Yeah, we we definitely preach that as well. And we've learned it in our own ways, like without naming the company or how Sam and I met, but we had a situation where it was a toxic like work environment. And eventually I escaped before Sam did, <laughs> like just hey. had to had to get out. Um, cause like you said, it bleeds into everything else in your life, your personal life, your work-life balance, your sanity. And then you get out and you're like, this is really scary. I don't know if I made the right choice, but you start to be able to breathe again. Oh my God. Feels, I felt yeah. when I left, when I left narcotics, I took everything. I, I showed up at night when I got the transfer, I'll never forget. I was off that day. And, and I got a phone call. It's like, you're going back to the precinct. So report to the precinct day after tomorrow. I said, all right, so I didn't want to face the guys in my office. They didn't know I was leaving because my sergeant and I kept it hush-hush. So I went up there with a friend of mine who was a cop, and I got all my stuff out. And I brought it out. When I tell you when I returned to the precinct, it felt, I felt like Andy Dufresne at the end of the Shawshank Redemption coming out of that pipe. Like, I just felt so, like, yes, I was going to have to answer questions from everybody. That was fine. But I, I, would, I would rather answer the questions and deal with that fallout than, than be in narcotics anymore. I did. I felt so, it just, I felt so much better. The same as when I left that small police department in Florida. I mean, I'm working midnights and I'm 40 something years old working midnights in a small police department in Florida. I have no idea where I am. I'm in a car by myself. I'm in my forties. I'm drinking five, six cups of coffee to stay awake on a midnight shift. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I don't need this shit. I can do something else, you know? And I walked in like one day on my day off and I'll never forget the captain is like, Hey, how you doing? What can I do for you? I go, oh, I'm going to ruin your morning. But <laughs> he goes, oh, what? Mm-hmm. I says, I- I'm done. He goes, what do, you, what do you mean you're done? What does that mean? I go, 
I'm resigning. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, what if we put you on days? I said, if you put me on days, the guys aren't going to respect me. I says, you're going to take me off midnights and put me on days. The guys aren't going to respect me. And I still might not be happy. And we might be having this conversation three months from now. And then you're going to look like a schmuck because you took a chance on me and I'm still backing out. He goes, well, what if we made you a detective in six months? I said, no, I'm done. I says, I'm just done. And he goes, he goes, well, you're going to have to return all your equipment. I go, funny you should say that. It's out in the trunk. Let me go get it. So, you know what I mean? It's like when I get to a point where I'm done with something, I'm done with something. And, and that includes, you know, relationships or just things I'm doing in my life. If it's not enjoyable for me anymore, if it doesn't serve a purpose or it's like you said, it's making you toxic, you're not on this earth that long. So you really shouldn't be miserable. It's, it's time to pull the ripcord and do something else. Yeah, it's okay to quit in any aspect of your life. Oh, I've had many failures, but you got to move on. You, you yeah. just do. I've, I've entered a place of my life where I can appreciate it almost in real time. Some of the uncomfortable things that I have to endure to get to the next chapter or the next scene of my of my book right that I'm living right now so that maybe one day I'll get bored and I can be like let me tell you some crazy stories right and and you know I'm very grateful for that because it doesn't make it any less uncomfortable even the fact that I catch myself being very willing to go oh man like I I really don't want to do this but I'm doing it to get to whatever right Um, and I agree you have to be able to identify that which is serving you and that which isn't because if you can't get rid of the things that are no longer serving you, you don't have room for the things that are going to serve you, right? And that leads me that leads me to this part of our conversation of, you know, you've, I'm sure you've had plenty of ups and downs, right? Um, but do you have any maybe advice or any kind of uh, anything that you would ask like our listeners to ponder on, right? From the experience that you have. Um, and it could pertain to failure or it could just be in general, you know, advice, like life advice, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm far from me to give advice, but you're asking. So I'm telling, um, <laughs> don't get stale, always take up a new hobby, try something else. Like we were speaking to earlier. If I can't believe I sound like a motivational speaker, but <laughs> you know, it, like I said, I, I never thought of myself as becoming a writer. I, I, I didn't. And I didn't become a police officer that, Oh, down the road, I'm going to have this really cool career writing books and I'm going to make a little bit of money with it. No, it's just, I got bored. I, I've, I've always been one to entertain myself. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes writing for me is very frustrating. I want to pull my hair out with vice grips. And then other times It just flows out of me. Um, You know, take a break, learn how to do something else, do something that's enjoyable for yourself, you know? And like you said, you you can't quit on everything, right? You know, you you don't want to tell, get put out the message. Well, if you don't like something, don't do it. And like what Sam said earlier, sometimes you have to do things you don't like to get to the next level. You know, you just got to hold your nose and get through it. So, I mean, I guess never give up and, you know, don't get into that mindset where, oh, woe is me. And the worst thing anybody can do is feel sorry for yourself, because at the end of the day, you, you, you just screwing yourself. You really are, because no one's going to feel sorry for you after a while. You know, if you can't pick yourself up off the floor, people yeah. walk away from you. I, I feel that. Yeah, I definitely feel it. <laughs> I kind of like, like how... Uh, you're like, hey, I like to entertain myself. It reminded me of a song, and one of the lyrics says, uh, 
if you're bored, then you're boring. And that stuck with me ever since I was like a teenager where I was like, huh, uh, there was something about that that always resonated with me of like, if you're, if you're really, really bored with life, it's like, like you said, don't go stale, go do something new, right? Like move on to the next thing. Um, and I really appreciate that. And maybe after your, your writing career, that's your next thing is you're going to be a motivational speaker. No. Oh, God, no. You know, let me tell you something like doing these podcasts and radio interviews, like I, I embrace them now, but it was difficult for me to do this. Like, I just wanted to write my books and, and, and be anonymous. You know, I just wanted to make a little bit of money and, and, and enjoy myself, put myself out here. I, you know, like my biggest fear is somebody like Oprah is going to find me interesting and it's going to ruin my life. You, you know what I mean? Like, and if she's listening oh, to this uh, podcast, I wouldn't mind. But you know what I mean? It's, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword doing this, but, you know, it, the good outweighs the bad. I, I do get to meet people like yourselves who I do find interesting. And, you know, they, they give me a platform to tell my stories, you know, and it sells books. And, it, you know, it's just, it's, it's a circle. <laughs> it just goes round and round. Yeah. And I definitely agree with you. You know, this is a, a great way to help each other, right? But, you know, I think almost almost every time now, like we think about and talk about how if it wasn't for this podcast, we wouldn't get to meet people like you, right? Or or like the other guests well, that we've had where yeah. Yeah. And and it's so wild, right? How there is uh, a very interesting connectivity that happens now with the way the world does work. Um well, I will so, never turn down an interview. I never. I mean, as, as, as long as the people are nice to me, they can ask whatever they want. But as long as they're respectful, I, I, I will never turn down a radio interview, a podcast, because you never know. I mean, you, you guys know. could be the next be- best thing. And I've done podcasts with people over the years that had no following whatsoever. And it took off. And I'm like, I'll do an interview with them now. And I'm like, holy shit, like my book sales will, will bounce. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you know what? Maybe one day I'll be the next best thing and I will never, you know, I'm never too big to give you guys an hour. You know, if you come back and hey, Vic, you know, remember us? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll find time for you. You know what I mean? Because you never know. You know what I mean? Someone's going to give you an opportunity. You should remember that. Yeah. 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 And I I think we both learned about how much we value just human connection and uh, like beyond our passions and then the person we bring on just stories, like telling stories and making it not feel so alone when it feels shitty. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I definitely respect and appreciate that. Uh, I think that's a good piece of, uh, I guess, advice also, right? Of you shouldn't forget the opportunities that people provide, right? No matter how big or small you think you are, you could be in a stall and someone's trying to steal your gun. Oh, God. And, uh, hey, I got a good. You want to hear the Hansel and Gretel story? I think I we have real, to. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hansel and Gretel story. So it's the early 90s. Young cops. You know, we're going out after work. We're going to bars. We're meeting girls. We're hanging out, having a good time. My old partner used to work with a guy that was an amateur magician. So we'd be at the bar talking to girls and stuff. And this guy would come over. And the next thing you know, he's pulling flowers out of his wrist. He's pulling gold coins out of their ears. Basically, he's cock blocking everybody with magic. <laughs> so I turned to my old partner. I go, get him the fuck out of here. Like, I, I, like every fucking time this guy, you know, he's pulling rabbits out of hats and shit. So he goes, you know, it's funny you should say that. He goes, I wish he took his police career as much as he did his magic act. 
So anyway, they're on patrol. They're doing midnights in the Bronx. It's a cold winter night. They get called to a basement apartment in a six-story walk-up. And the, the call is just calls for help in the basement. They go into the basement. There's two doors, right? They go to the first door. They're underground. They pound on the door. Nobody answers. My partner goes to pound on the second door. The magician stops him. And the magician says, come on, don't knock on that door. He goes, whoever called, he goes, this is bullshit. If they called 911, they would have heard us with our radios on our nightsticks making all this noise down here. They would open the door. Let's, let's go get a cup of coffee. My partner goes to knock on the door again. He goes, come on, I'll pay for the coffee. Let's get out of here. Because he's lazy. They leave. Now, what they didn't know was behind door number two, the super of the building lived there. He was selling coke out of his apartment. Well, he fell behind in his cocaine payments to his wholesalers. When you do that in the drug world, they don't send friendly notices. They don't cancel your cable. They, sell, they send a couple of people to your door. So the super knew he had a problem. So what these people did was, they, it's an old gypsy trick. They got an attractive female. They knocked on his door one late night. They put the attractive female in the peephole. The super thinks, oh, hot chick who wants to buy Coke. She's probably a crackhead. I either got a sale or I'm going to hook up with something, right? He opens the door. These two Albanian guys push their way into the apartment with the girl. They pistol whip him. Where's the Coke? Where's the money? He doesn't have the answers. They shoot the super in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. They drag him out of the apartment. They throw him in the furnace. So while he's going up like a Puerto Rican fire log, they go back into the apartment and they're ransacking the apartment. My partner and the magician are outside, right? They're going to knock on that door. So the two Albanian guys tell the girl who's in it with them. It's not like she's a victim in all this. They go, listen, if these two fucking cops knock on the door, this is what I want you to do. It was a railroad apartment that goes straight through with apartments off to the side. We're going to hide in the side rooms. Just keep talking to them in Yugoslavian and tell them to come to the, come to the, come to the kitchen. When you pass the threshold of this doorway, jump on the floor. We'll jump out. We'll shoot the cops in the head. We'll throw them in the furnace and we'll get the hell out of here. Well, obviously, they never knocked on that door and they're still alive. Two weeks later, the family is like, what happened to the super? He's not answering calls. Where is he? The detectives pick up the case of a missing person. They see that there was a 911 call to the basement apartments that night. So they call in my old partner and the magician. Do, 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 you know, was there anything out of suspicious? And they go, no. But the funny thing is, when we left, there was a car parked in a fire hydrant and we gave it a ticket. Well, that was the getaway car that was registered to the female. So they were able to track down to the female. She panics. She throws the two hitmen under the bus trying to minimize her involvement, of course, but that didn't work. So basically, they all three got arrested for murder. They had to go back to the building like a month later in the dead of winter, shut the heat off, wait till the furnace cooled down to pull this guy's bones and teeth out of the incinerator. So that's a story from NYPD through the looking glass call last night. A magician saved my life. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. I I mean, the whole time you were talking, I was like, holy mother. It was turn Wait, after I, turn. Not not only was it like about to knock and like, hey, don't do it. But the guy went to knock again. He's like, no, for real. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. That and guy that faith. I worked with, not, not the magician, but the guy I worked with. Like I knew him my whole career. And then I was lucky enough to work with him. And we used to call him cancer because he killed more people than cancer. He was in a couple of gun battles and he always come out on top. So like, when I got the chance to work with him, like this guy knows what he's doing. He, he was a really sharp, good guy to work with. 
So first I want to thank you of this conversation has been awesome. Right. Uh, one, I, I think there are some things that I don't know if I ever really thought about uh, it just as like police officers in general, but you know, the NYPD, you know um, I have this weird kind of need to go check out old reruns of like NYPD blue and just be like, I wonder if, but you know, may, maybe one day I got to see if it's on a streaming service. Right. I really do appreciate you sharing. Uh, and I do think I'm going to have to just start one by one, just reading your books. You said there's five total, right? Yeah. Uh, I've written five books for NYPD based. So if you go gotcha. on my Amazon author page, they're, they're all uh, there. Perfect. Well, with that being said, uh, thanks again. Love to do this little bit where we kind of remind everyone that we do have social media and you can find us there. Yeah. So yeah. Friendly reminder, our social media is everywhere. We're on all those fun little platforms you guys like to be on (laughs) and we like to be on too. Super convincing. Um, But we're going to link everything as well. We're making it super easy for you. So wherever you're listening or watching, there's going to be a link for us and links for Vic and his Amazon site as well with all of his books. So if you liked the stories, you definitely need to hear the rest of the stories. There's Mm -hmm. plenty out there, Uh, plenty of reading material. We're trying to convince him to get Joe Pesci to do an audio book. So we'll let you know if that comes to fruition. If you know Joe Pesci, Pesci. I guess. (laughs) That's great. I love that. (laughs) We'll cross our fingers on that one. Um, And then our final call out that we always do is send in your own failures uh you can send that to friends of failure podcast at gmail.com we just want to you know make it normal to talk about it it can be anonymous if you're not ready to put a name to it or you can put you know your street address and where we can find you (laughs) your bank information your social number um, yeah yeah I'm hoping that we have a link, like people listen to this and they're like, oh, I'm going to go look at the links. And there's a GoFundMe to get uh, Joe Pesci to narrate uh, the books. <laughs> I'll start uh, a petition. I work. I like Harvey or De Niro. Or oh, yeah. Okay. All good choices. <laughs> yeah, we're very open-minded. Uh, yeah. You know, they're, they're all great options. Uh, you know, uh, that's going to be an interesting phone call for one of us to get, right? Joe Pesci's on the other line, like, I'm interested. Let's do it. Uh, of course, he's just throwing the F word at me, but, you know, it would still be a fun conversation. With all that being said, uh, I just want to thank everyone for listening uh, today, whatever day that is, and uh, leave you with that final thought that we love to share every time, right? And that's, don't forget that life is happening for you, not to you. So go do something. Boom. There we go. If it's not I'm stronger than you, it's I'm wiser than you, I'm more loving than you, I'm more tolerant than you, I'm more sophisticated than you. It doesn't matter what it is, but this constant competition is going on. This is the secret. This is the secret. can't make a mistake.